Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Welcome to Hollywood and Levine. I am Ken Levine, your podcast host, and this is part two of my interview with best-selling author Mark Harris. He has written a terrific book called Mike Nichols, A Life. Now, this is part two. If you missed part one, after you listen to this, go back and check that out. Last week, we talked a lot about his beginning and his relationship with Elaine May. Of course, he and Elaine May teamed up to become a comedy team that was a national sensation in the late 50s, early 60s. This week, we're going to concentrate a lot more on his directing and other aspects of his career. Again, a fascinating, larger-than-life individual and a great book and great author to talk about him. It's Mark Harris, and that comes up right now on Hollywood and Levine. So he became a director, first-time director, and it was on Neil Simon's second play, Barefoot in the Park. You know, that's a leap of faith to go with a brand-new director, wasn't it? A, a big leap of faith, um, and and Neil Simon was initially really not sure about it. Uh, he was someone that um, Elizabeth Ashley, who was the female lead in the play, was really excited about. Um, she had seen his comedy and and thought he would bring something new to it. And uh, according to Mike, um, th- from the first day he walked into uh, the rehearsal room, and they were originally, you know, doing it in summer stock in, in uh, Pennsylvania with the hope that it would eventually come to Broadway, he just said he felt like he was home and and was so relieved not to be a performer and and kind of thought oh i know how to do this i know how to um help actors and actresses do the kind of thing that elaine and i love to do on stage which is find a real moment i know how to calm down a jittery writer i know how to be the dad in this room which is an image he often used he said you know i i wanted to be the dad not the spoiled baby which is how he felt he behaved as a performer um and uh that that strange thing that that with no experience he still had this kind of serene air of confidence that put everybody else at ease um clicked in first week of his first directing job ever and kind of stayed in place forever and one thing that he stressed was play it real and he was not going for the jokes I remember he would say to the actors, the laughs will come, but 
he wasn't pushing for the jokes. He was pushing for the reality. That's a different style that Broadway was not used to because prior to that, boy, guys would wind up and hit those punchlines. Right, and they'd practically be, you know halfway facing up to the audience as they delivered them there was there 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 wasn't any even pretense of staying in the moment or pretending you were really these characters you know it was just batting you know funny one-liners back and forth and uh, it's you know one of the big surprises for me in working on the book was uh, going into it i really kind of thought, well, he had this amazing 50-year career as a stage director and simultaneously as a movie director. And then before that, he had this extraordinary other career with Elaine May. And what an interesting combination that is. But I had no idea of how much the work he did with Elaine May shaped his whole approach as a director. Because that, that whole don't chase the laugh, keep it real, find a physical action that will deepen or alter or or enhance the meaning of the line all of his hallmarks as a director were things that he um learned as an actor working with her and that relationship pretty much lasted for the rest of his life and his career i guess he relied on her judgment more than anybody throughout his life I think that's right. And and she on his, I mean, they, they would show each other scripts that they were thinking of doing. Um, they got together many times over the decades for any number of, of uh, benefits or political performances. I mean, they, they uh, performed uh, for the Selma marchers. They performed uh, at Madison square garden for McGovern. Um, and then uh, they acted together on stage in a revival of who's afraid of Virginia Woolf. And then in the nineties, she, um, she rewrote uh, the movie Wolf, which he directed, and then went on to be the sole writer on The Birdcage and on Primary Colors. So they were always very, very connected. Let's talk about his directing style for a second, because he had a very unique way of communicating to actors. He would tell stories, and out of those stories were basically the the messages that he wanted to convey in terms of how the actor should see that character or play that character. I don't know of any other director who ever did that. Yeah, it's it's and it wasn't it didn't always work. I mean, the, there was one person who said, you know, especially late in his career, the stories he told sometimes you, you, he said you really had to be a micologist to understand how the story he was telling connected to the point he wanted to make about what you should be doing on stage. But even as late as the revival of Death of a Salesman, um, and which was in 2012, and as early at least as uh, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which was shot in 1965, he would... He would use analogy. He would use anecdote. He would say, you know, do you remember how you felt in high school when so-and-so? Or have you ever been at a party where you didn't want to talk to someone, but they wanted to talk to you and you couldn't get away? That's what I want you to act like in this moment. I mean, he, he would really find things to um, to unlock actors. And uh, I was struck by 
what Richard Burton, who worked with him on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, said, which is that um, it, it's not so much that he directs you, it's that he conspires with you to to find to help you find the character. Um, and I think that's why uh, so many actors, not obviously the ones he was mean to, but, uh, you know, sometimes <laughs> even those actors really did find him an incredibly valuable person to work with. But you said there are some that didn't. There are some that just said, you know, just what do you want me to do here? <laughs> right, right. I mean, and and that was, you know, that was generally not the kind of actor that Mike, like to um hire he he, he didn't imagine. He, he didn't want actors who just said just tell me like where to step and and how to say the line although although there were a couple of um moments when he did it and it really unlocked something there's a great story about how um he and buck henry uh who wrote the final version of the graduate didn't feel in rehearsals that ann bancroft was finding the character and um uh, fin- finally, uh, you know, she just said to Nichols, just how how would you say this line? And Nichols did it. And Anne Bancroft said, oh, I get it. That's anger. She's angry. And apparently it just completely unlocked her performance. And, and that was all she needed to, to, to figure it out. So sometimes the things you're not supposed to do, I guess, as a director... Even those things can work. Yeah. No, as a TV director, uh, I know you don't give line readings unless they ask for it. And some actors will. Some will just say, just tell me how to do it. And you tell them and they go out and they do it and it gets the laugh and they go, thank you. I think Richard Burton, of all people, you know, this great classical actor, was another actor who really liked Mike to just say it the way it should be said. Um, I, I guess for some actors, it's helpful. And for some, it's the last thing in the world they want. Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was the first movie he directed. And you, you look at the strikes, uh, how many strikes until you're out. It was in black and white, which the studio didn't want. Uh, the language was very coarse. And there was a problem of getting it cleared uh, you had a first-time director who knew nothing about cameras, and yet he somehow pulled it off. And you have a great story in there of how he he enlisted the help of of Jacqueline Kennedy to get the movie cleared. <laughs> right. I mean, Mike had this gigantic social circle, and um, and he really knew how to orchestrate it. And, you know, there was this, this moment when he was fired from the movie in post-production, which was something Jack Warner, the head of Warner brothers often did. Um, and to get back into the editing room, um, he, he sort of made a deal with Warner and said, look, I, you're going to have a huge problem getting this movie cleared by the national Catholic office of motion pictures, which is what used to be called the Legion of decency. And, if they condemn it, we're really going to be in trouble in terms of the theaters that will be willing to play it. So I'm going to bring in Jacqueline Kennedy, and she's going to sit there with all of the bishops and and priests and, and, uh, as Mike put it, Monsignor, what's-his-name, who are there 
to assess the movie. And when the movie ends, she's going to turn around and say very audibly to the Monsignor, what a wonderful movie. Jack would have loved it. And that will do it. And in fact, that's exactly what happened. Jacqueline Kennedy allowed herself to be used that way. And um, Nichols said it was the only time he ever asked a friend to do something like that. But uh, it was, if you have to do it once, that was a good moment to do it. Yeah, I was thinking of calling Jackie Kennedy to see if she could help get me an assignment on the Jeffersons. And uh, <laughs> she she never did. She just said, I don't want to make a habit of it. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, like, <laughs> you can't write the Jeffersons, buddy. Uh, <laughs> More with Mark Harris in a moment, but first a word about Honey. And if you've been listening to this podcast, you know about Honey. It is the free shopping tool that scours the Internet for promo codes and applies the best ones it finds to your cart when you go shopping online. It's very easy. You're on your favorite site and you want to buy something. Uh, You get to the checkout window and the Honey button pops down and all you got to do is click Apply Coupons. Wait a couple of seconds. It does its thing. It finds the coupons that do apply and all of a sudden you see your price go down and down and down. I use it myself. Uh, Just last week, I bought this spiffy pair of sunglasses. It's kind of my Roy Orbison phase. Uh, I saved $12 thanks to Honey. So if you don't already have Honey, you could straight up be missing out on free savings. Like I said, it is free. It installs in just a few seconds. And by getting it, you'll be doing yourself a solid and supporting this podcast. Okay, I'd never recommend something I didn't use. Again, check out these shades. So get Honey for free at joinhoney.com slash Levine. Once again, that's joinhoney.com slash Levine. Now we move on to The Graduate. And, I mean, this movie was, like, (laughs) so important to people of my generation it resonated so deeply. Interestingly, it starred an unknown in Dustin Hoffman. And talk a little bit about the casting of Dustin Hoffman. That was pretty unorthodox. Right. I mean, as you said about Virginia Woolf, this was another movie with a number of strikes against it. No studio would make it. It was made by an independent company. It starred a complete unknown. And I think the casting of Dustin Hoffman uh, is a great example uh, of uh, Mike knowing um, knowing that he should follow his instincts, even sometimes without knowing why they were his instincts. Because, you know, there's a famous story, which I put in the book, about Robert Redford uh, really wanting to play Benjamin in the Grand. Yeah, hey, I love that story. You know, uh, Nichols saying you can't do it. You know, like, when was the last time you you struck out with a woman and Redford said, what do you mean? Um, It was like beyond (laughs) comprehension, but, and now, you know, when we think of like, what if Robert Redford had starred in the graduate, it seems absurd. But if you look at the novel, the graduate is based on the character is very Redfordish in a way. I mean, he's blonde, he's athletic. He goes off in the middle of the novel for some long episode to fight forest fires in Northern California. He's much more like Robert Redford than he is like Dustin Hoffman. Um, and, and Nichols wouldn't make the movie. He developed it for years. He wouldn't make the movie until he found a Benjamin that he believed in. And, and 
So what he saw in Hoffman, he later said he he didn't even realize how much he was identifying with that character as the sort of Jewish outsider in in um, uh, the paradise of the West Coast, this kind of misfit. Even though Benjamin is never explicitly identified as Jewish, um, he he just he knew that Hoffman would bring something to it um, that was what the movie needed and what the what the relationship with Mrs. Robinson needed and what the relationship with Elaine needed. Uh, and, you know, you can't imagine The Graduate without Dustin Hoffman, right? Well, here's a fun fact, though, that I didn't know, that the original Mr. Robinson was Gene Hackman, who he fired and brought in Murray Hamilton. Right. Mike would often fire an actor uh, early in the process. And in this case that happened during the third week of rehearsals uh and and uh nobody could quite say why it happened i mean elizabeth wilson told me that mike was annoyed that hackman wouldn't memorize his lines mike said that um he he felt that hackman was too young for the part um uh which is possible because murray hamilton was a little bit older um on the other hand you know Dustin Hoffman was 30 playing 22 and mm-hmm. Anne Bancroft was 36 playing 45. So I don't think age <laughs> was that much of a thing. Um, but, but you know, there was one producer who said uh, to me that when Mike felt he cast someone wrong, he was like a, a conductor trying to conduct, uh, conduct a, a musician who didn't bring his instrument. Like it, it was just paralyzing to him when he felt he had made a casting mistake. Um, and one thing that Elaine May said to him at one point was, if you don't like an actor after five days, fire them. They never get better. Um, so I don't know how much he believed that or not, but, but yeah, Hackman, um, uh, Mike joked often that he had fired some of the, uh, best actors in the business. You know, he fired Gene Hackman. He fired Mandy Patinkin. He fired Robert De Niro off a movie that he never finished. So that was something that he did, definitely. Now, he's worked with some very difficult actors, guys like George C. Scott, who was just basically nuts. And he would use them again if he felt they were right for a part. I find it fascinating that after The Graduate, he never worked again with Dustin Hoffman. Yeah, it's, I I mean, Dustin Hoffman has said that that was a real regret of his. And I think it was a very difficult, no question, a very difficult relationship, although they did come close a couple of times. So there was no, there was no situation uh, where Nichols said never again. I mean, he really wanted um, Dustin Hoffman to do... uh, Waiting for Godot at Lincoln Center, the production that Mike ended up directing with um, Steve Martin and um, Robin Williams. Mm-hmm. And and Hoffman himself said, I don't have, unfortunately, the specific instances, but Hoffman said that he, one of his big regrets is that he turned down uh, Mike three times um, after The Graduate for, for other for other roles. Um, uh, but, but it's a, it's a great sort of what might have been game you can play because even Mike at one point said, uh, maybe catch 22, which was the, uh, first movie that he made 
after The Graduate and a movie that he had really mixed feelings about over the decades. Maybe Catch-22 would have worked better if he had cast uh, Dustin Hoffman instead of Alan Arkin uh, in the lead. So so Hoffman was very much in Nichols's consciousness uh, over the decades after The Graduate. No yeah, it's question. not like he never asked him to, to work again. It's just that right. I mean, didn't. George C. Scott, yeah, for instance, after they had done four projects together and, and um, Scott did something that was for Nichols, the last straw, that was it. He was never going to work with him again. Um, and there were some people like that, that on that list, Walter Matthau, um, but Hoffman was not one of them. Yeah. Walter Matthau comes off as a giant asshole. In, uh, yeah, the that, was, that was disappointing. Um, but, but it's, it, it seemed to be um, pretty well corroborated. So, you know, I had to tell it. <laughs> well, glad you did. Um, Catch-22, I think, starts to prove that Mike Nichols is human. You know, there was a long period where he was absolutely the golden boy and won awards and one hit after another. And then all of a sudden, Catch-22... Uh, was this kind of bloated disappointment. And then over the next few years, there were like a number of missteps, including Day of the Dolphins, which we talked about, and um, and an, a number of movies. And here is where he starts taking projects, uh, not so much because he really cares deeply about them, but because it's a big payday. Yeah, it's it's tricky. It's hard. Um, you know, I think any kind of failure, especially one as big as Catch-22, was destabilizing. And he, I mean, the impressive thing to me is he drew a really good lesson from Catch-22 that he often um, returned to later in his career, which is after you have a big disappointment, he said, the thing to do is do something small that you really like and that you believe in, that you believe in the material or your collaborators or both, and that you don't have very big commercial expectations for. So the first movie he makes after Catch-22 is Carnal Knowledge, which is, you know, a, a big success and, a, you know, puts him back in the game. But then, yes, Dave the Dolphin, which he did to fulfill a contractual obligation, it's probably the first the first thing he did as a director where his heart was not in it at all. And he just kind of, checked out of the whole process and things like that did happen all the way up to um the gary shandling movie what planet are you from which was probably one of his unhappiest um experiences as a director and probably one of his worst movies but also i believe was his biggest payday ever so mike was not immune to you know uh making those decisions although i'm i i did become really impressed um, uh, as I worked on the book over over years that at the fact that he would always take time to examine his failures. He really wasn't particularly defensive about them. Um, he didn't try to explain them away usually or or pretend that they were successes. He was he was sort of genuinely interested in why he made missteps when he made missteps, and and he would try to learn from them and and not make i mean he made a number of different mistakes but he rarely made the same mistake twice and he was very resilient because he always bounced back 
You know, there was Silkwood, there was Birdcage, um, there was Working Girl. Uh, on Broadway, there was Spamalot. He always seemed to find a way to right the ship. Yeah, I think I think that when Mike was at his best, uh, especially starting in the '80s, starting with Silkwood, um, it, it what what was really important to him was that he believed in the material and he believed in the collaborators, either the actors or the writers, or preferably both. And it wasn't so important to him that every new movie or every play he directed become like part of a perfectly curated collection of work that was ultimately going to be like thematically cohesive or something like that. Mm-hmm. It, that didn't matter to him so much as is this good? Do I, do I think the people I'm working on it with are talented? Do I think that there's something in particular that I can bring to it? Is there some way I feel connected to it? That's usually how he made his decisions. And, and it wasn't, um, uh, a hundred percent perfect track record, but I think when you look at his resume, either as a theater director or a movie director, and see how much really interesting work there is there over the decades, that's probably a tribute to um, the the degree to which Mike kept his eye on that as a goal, on on just you know making sure that um, he he succumbed to you know a big payday or something as rarely as possible and and the rest of the time really led with his his gut and his heart about what he liked yeah, it's interesting that the same guy could direct waiting for godot and spam a lot right right and <laughs> and really kind of passionately uh believe in them both i mean i i was fascinated to hear with spam a lot that that one of his big notes, and Mike was already in his 70s and, and not in good health when he did Spam a lot, but the, the note he gave the actors over and over again was, you know, keep it real. I know this feels like a throwaway um, sketch comedy to you, but we have to at least tell this little skeleton of a story as if we believe in it. And, and you know, he wrote this great sort of... Um, bullet point manifesto about how to play the comedy in that show that that sort of persisted on a dressing room door through the many many changes of cast that that Spamalot went through over the years and and a lot of it boiled down to don't chase the laugh make sure you're connecting to the other person on stage um if it, you know the minute something becomes kind of calcified and you know that you have a laugh there loosen it up and change it um you know tell the story uh all, all of that stuff was really important to him i mean mike mike was uh maybe a more a looser and more generous director with drama than he was with comedy comedy was almost a science to him i mean it had rules and you better not you know screw around with them a lot of times directors will direct a play it will open and you never see them again and Mike was still invested. You talk about spam a lot. He would go every few months just to watch it and give notes and tune it up a little bit to make sure it's as good as it's it could be. Yeah, Mike had a lesson in that really early in his stage directing career with The Odd Couple, which was a play that... Um, everyone really thought might run eight or 10 years. And instead it ended up running for like two or two and a half, um, partly because uh, it was 
it turned out to be more star driven than um than he thought it was and they couldn't you know f- ever find anyone who would pull them in like Walter Matthau and Art Carney did but partly because Mike had to go off and uh make the graduate soon after the odd couple opened um I think it was a graduate. Maybe, maybe it was actually Virginia Woolf, um, and wasn't able to pay attention to it, and and um, it kind of fell out of shape in ways that really disturbed him when he came back. So, so after that, he was always very, very um, uh, zealous about checking in, and when he could uh, spare a day or two to rehearse an, a, a new actor or replacement actor, he would do it. It really mattered to him. So let's uh, double back now to Angels in America. When Mike decided he wanted to do that, was uh, Tony thrilled or was he going, "Eh, I don't know if this is the right guy for this? (laughs) (laughs) I think he was pretty thrilled. I mean, it's, uh, you know, Angels had had a number of almosts before Mike signed on that Robert Altman was going to do it for years and years. And then there were all kinds of money questions like, could it be two movies? Can it, could we possibly compress it to one movie? Do we only want to do the first part? And then it went through a whole variety of directors um, kind of flirting with it, like uh, to the point where uh, Tony really thought it was just not going to happen. Um, and, and uh, then, you know, it, it luckily the, the sort of beginning of, of the prestige cable miniseries era um, coincided with, with Mike's interest in it. And um, I think any, any trepidation that Tony had about Mike pretty much evaporated um, the first time they had lunch together, which was, I think, kind of a, an arranged blind date to see if they could get along and like each other. And, and, um, you know, uh, one, the two things that Mike said, uh, were that he wanted to keep the doubling, um, in, in angels, some actors play more than one role on Mm -hmm. stage. And, And Tony really loved the idea that that would be kept in, uh, film, which is something he hadn't really thought about himself. And, and, he said, uh, Tony, Tony told Mike that, um, Robert Altman had, had told him that he really needed to change the script a lot to make it more like a movie than like a play. And, um, Mike said to him, I, I actually don't agree with that. I think that we want to have fun with some of the inherent theatricality of it. And, and, you know, don't, don't worry about coming up with, movie tricks you know tony handed him a a script eventually for the first hour the first episode um which is basically the first act of the first play and mike said to him very gently you've never written a script before have you and and um tony said uh no i haven't um and mike said i can tell because you've filled it with all these like camera angles and medium close-up and cut to this and cut to that. And you don't have to worry about that. Like he said, just write the script that you want to write and, and you don't have to make it sound like a movie. I'll, I'll take care of it and, and we'll figure it out together. And so it was, you know, it was a a really a dream partnership and, and uh, it turned out to be uh, a friendship uh, that lasted for the rest of Mike's life. 
It was a huge undertaking, too. Like you said, almost a year of filming. And Mike's health was not great then, right? He was, like, well into his 70s. He, he was about 70 then. And, you know, he always had lung problems, and he'd already had a heart attack. And this was, I mean... He built in a, a good summer vacation for himself, but it was still kind of the never-ending shoot. It was, you know, many, many locations, um, you know, a lot of really hard, really specific work, six six hours. I think I think they went into rehearsal in January, and I don't think it wrapped until December. So he, he you know, is by far the longest shoot he ever did he gave a year uh, of his life to it and then it did not air until um the following december so so post a lot to edit really long too yeah a lot to edit um uh so it it, a couple of the actors said to me you know there was a point when i just thought this is my permanent job now being an angel in america (laughs) like I'm, i'm not going to have any other jobs it's just i'm going to come to this set every day for the rest of my career well i think the result was a masterpiece uh you know i'm i'm really happy that people still love it and watch it and i know tony is too well you know we talk about influencers today and you look back and who was a bigger influencer than Mike Nichols. As we mentioned, he basically changed comedy. Uh, his role in, you know, the culture, you know, the impact of some of his movies. You know, it's like if Bob Dylan is the voice of our generation, then Mike Nichols is probably the director. Right. And I mean, one of the things I'm so happy about uh, working on this book is that. I, well, two things. I mean, one is that more people, like especially young people, are discovering uh, Nichols and May, um, who a lot of people, you know, don't really know about as much as they should. And also, I'm happy that people can explore the life of a director who isn't necessarily uh, like tailored to the model of what people think a movie director is, which is someone who must knock all obstacles out of his way in order to realize his vision. I mean, Mike's approach to directing was deeply collaborative and, and I I'm, I'm happy to have um, been able to write a book celebrating that uh, version of directing. Cause it's not one we talk about enough. Well, maybe you'll be lucky and you can option the book to a major motion picture and Mandy Potemkin can play Mike Nichols. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I I cannot imagine even that Mandy Potemkin would ever want to do that. But, uh, (laughs) you know, it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, I'm, whatever happens with with the book, I'm really, I'm, I'm happy it's out there and I'm happy more people are getting to, to know his work. It's like so fun for me to go on Twitter, for instance, and see that somebody is um, working their way chronologically through Mike's movies. And I'm always so impressed if they get past the day of the dolphin, like if they get past the day of the dolphin and keep going, then I'll know they're really, they're in for the whole thing. If they've seen regarding Harry, then, (laughs) then, you know, there are, there are, um, speed bumps along the way for sure well it's a terrific book thank you so much for uh 
sharing some of the stories and thank you for writing the book. Uh, it, it truly was a pleasure. And thank you so much, Ken, for having me on. And that concludes my two-part interview with best-selling author Mark Harris. Again, if you want to get the book, it is called Mike Nichols, A Life, and it is available wherever books are sold, meaning your computer. Our thanks, as always, to Adam and Susie Meister-Butler, to Howard Hoffman, John Wolfert, to Bruce and Jason Miller. Yes, it takes a village to put this podcast together. I have an email address, should you wish to connect with me, hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. That is hollywoodlevine at outlook.com. Also on Twitter, at Ken Levine. Also on Instagram, Hollywood and Levine. We will talk to you again next week. Thanks for listening. Bye. Hollywood and the fine.